I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program... A two-hour conversation with Kuba Resnuski, a national security commentator associated with This Is Revolution, on the Ukraine crisis, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. This was recorded yesterday, 3.10 at 7.30 p.m., so if anything is out of date, my apologies, but we're working with a moving target subject. And with that being said, let's hear a word from one of our sponsors and then straight to the conversation with Kuba. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this, Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on uh, for some time now. Uh, does a lot of shows with C. Derek Varn's Varn Vlog, and also uh, This Is Revolution, uh, Kuba Rosniewski, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that one, but how are you doing tonight? 
I'm doing all right. Um, the how are you doing? Uh, thank you for inviting me on the show. I'm I'm glad to have this chance to. I'm doing good, but I'm very nervous with all this news that's developing. But that goes without saying. Um, what is your initial reaction to what has gone on so far? Where do you th- see things being at right now? So, I was a little surprised at the level of resistance that Ukraine has been able to put up with and the resilience of its armed forces and government. I thought that this might be another situation in which um, you have a military disintegrating on point of contact with the superior force. Can I, uh, can I interrupt real mm-hmm. quick? I, I agree with you, but the thing I'm worried about now is like a lot of people I've noticed are being kind of triumphalist saying, oh, it's it's over, Russia has failed. And I, the impression I'm getting from people I'm talking to that are closer to things in DC is that, you know, Russia has not gone as far as it possibly could get in what it could do with regards to like even civilian casualties. Oh yes, that's certainly true. The I think that one reason why the war has gone on um, has gone the way it has is because for Putin, unlike in Syria, where the post-war settlement and stabilization was Bashar al-Assad's problem, um, or in Georgia, where um, after defeating the Georgian army, the Russian forces stopped at the borders of the already pro-Russian South Ossetian and Abkhaz republics. Here, Putin can only achieve his strategic goals by a negotiated outcome with uh, Ukrainian government. Not necessarily Zelensky's government, it could be somebody handpicked by Putin, but whoever is put in charge of uh, enacting whatever post-war settlement, whatever border changes, whatever political conditions come with it, they'll have to contend with the Ukrainian people who have demonstrated, you know, in Maidan and the Orange Revolution that they're capable of being mobilized, they're capable of challenging um, state authority. And the higher the level of resentment caused by high civilian casualties or gratuitous destruction during the course of the war, the harder it will be to manage that post-war settlement. So there's been restraint on the part of Russia. I think it's broken a little today. We've seen more um, aggressive bombardment of civilian uh, population centers, more street fighting, and, uh, and larger numbers of Russian troops coming in but they haven't targeted infrastructure. The power grid uh, hasn't been destroyed. Uh, that civilian infrastructure, which makes life possible, especially in the cities, uh, has been spared. And that's a decision that Russia made. They could have knocked all of those things out, which would make uh, resistance much more difficult. And, and no, also... we're, not, we're not saying that it's like a, a pro-Russia thing. I think both of us are not happy with this invasion. So in case anyone wants to accuse us of that. I want to get that out of there um, right at the beginning here. It's a purely tactical decision. And we can see that because the political arrangements were different in Syria and therefore Russian tactics were much more um, indiscriminate 
in terms of the damage they did. And similarly with Chechnya, Grozny just gets leveled during the uh, Chechen wars. But with Ukraine, both in terms of the post-war settlement with the Ukrainians, but also you have to contend with Russian public sentiment. And if they see through the internet channels or third country uh, news reports that there's been uh, what could be described as war crimes or atrocities committed by Russians against fraternal Slavic people in the in what Putin describes as this sort of unification struggle, this uh, bringing together of the Russian peoples, uh, then that could also harm him domestically. And the even with that restraint, um, the Russian advance has been steady. They've encircled some cities rather than um, contesting them. Uh, places like uh, Chernigov, the uh, Mariupol, and that's another decision made to um, limit casualties. It subjects um, the advance to, to risks because those undefeated forces in those cities could potentially stage a breakout. But, but was Mariupol chosen specifically because so, so Putin's line mm -hmm. was that this is about denazification. And I think a lot of the Azov battalion are in um, Mariupol. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with his line about denazification. I think some people have ran with that too much and, mm -hmm. and are taking that too much at face value. But uh, that is, I think, where the Azov battalion is, is at right now. So the Azov battalion and other right-wing uh, Milton's um, units were concentrated. They have the greatest will to fight Russians and um, to fight Russians in situations where it's not as clean as defending Kiev. And so they were used as shock troops against the Donetsk and Lugansk um, People's Republics. So they were concentrated on that front line. Uh, Mariupol is between Crimea and um, the DNR, uh, the DPR, LPR, in um, the Donbass. So it's part of the corridor that would link the two together uh, along the Azov Sea. And that was the front line of the right-wing units. So in driving towards Mariupol, they're attempting to encircle them. And then... The, these two republics, uh, and I'm not going to botch their names, but what's the, mm. the sort of history on that? So the, um, and Putin sort of delivered a history lesson on, with kind of the nationalist, the Russian nationalist line on why a Ukrainian uh, state even exists and why it shouldn't. And the um, that territory of Ukraine uh, hadn't had a um, local state, a Ukrainian state, since uh, before the Mongol invasion. There were a couple of rebellions in which Cossack states were established on Ukrainian territory, but generally speaking, it was divided between Poland, Lithuania, and Muscovy 
with Crimea being um, a Turkish Tatar uh, condominium. And during that period where you don't have nation states, you have a Ukrainian people that are a little different in dialect from Russians. Uh, some of them had uh, converted, especially in the West, to a uniate form of Ukrainian orthodoxy, which means that they're technically in communion with the Roman Catholic Church rather than with um, an Orthodox patriarchate. And um, you had a wide range of kind of identification. Some Ukrainians thought of themselves as Russian, some of them thought of themselves as Ukrainians. Cossack identity was a really big deal. Um, and some of them, especially the Uniates, uh, leaned a little towards Poland in the West. Uh, you also had minorities, Jewish minorities, Polish minorities, uh, all of the sort of uh, multicultural um, rainbow that you have in Eastern Europe, Romanians, gypsies, um, sorry, Roma, and the, um, when the Soviet revolution occurs, when the Russian revolution occurs, that's the first time that Ukraine is created as a um, modern unit, modern administrative unit on the lines of the nation state. And uh, there are attempts by anarchists, there are attempts by um, Polish-backed nationalists to create an independent Ukraine, but ultimately it's all absorbed in the Soviet Union. Or rather, Kiev, the Donbass, the eastern areas, Crimea, are absorbed in the Soviet Union. And Western Ukraine, Galicia, the area around Vuf, um, those uh, are captured by the and integrated into the Polish Second Republic. During uh, the early Soviet period, before World War II, you have very intense uh, Russification across Ukraine. Part of it is a development story. You know, you have factories, the cities uh, are building up, especially in the Donbass, where there's a lot of heavy industry. And Russians from other parts of uh, the Soviet Union move there, settle in large numbers. Also, the official language of, uh, you could get by in Ukrainian. Ukrainian was recognized and used in the USSR, but the national culture was all in Russian. So there was there were strong incentives to learn Russian and to live in the Soviet spaces and you know Soviet citizen with your Ukrainian identity minimized. In um, there's also to you know I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, the Holodomor, um, the deliberate state engineered starvation of hundreds of thousands millions of Ukrainians as part of Stalinist industrialization, which depopulated. Um, the Ukrainian heartland, and also created space for Russians to move in, and also produced a threat if you identify too strongly with your Ukrainian background. So the, uh, and the Crimean territories, those had been Tatar. They had never been um, Ukrainian proper. So even in the late Russian empire, the region around Odessa, for instance, or Crimea, that was settled largely by Russians from the center with some Ukrainians um, moving there as well. So the Donbass, because of this Soviet experience 
and because of the integration with uh, Russia during the USSR period, that has a very high concentration of people who identify as Russian by ethnicity. Russians, Russophones linguistically are dominate Ukraine, but you have people who are Ukrainian by self-identified ethnicity but speak Russian. The far west, the part that was under Polish administration before the war, where you didn't have the, the Holodomor um, taking place, but you watched as your kinsmen were dying as a result of Soviet policies, which um, the nationalist imagination ties to the Russian ethnicity, um, they retain a much stronger use of Ukrainian language and a very long historical memory of uh, suffering under Russian administration, which is why you have this east-west polarization where Crimea is largely Russian, Donbass is largely Russian, the center is this Russophone Ukrainian, and the west is uh, Ukrainian by language, uh, Ukrainian by ethnicity, and much more mobilized in the direction of um, ethno-national statehood for Ukraine. And that's where right sector and other right-wing nationalist groups have their uh, headquarters and have their uh, base. So in regards to uh, the two speeches that, that Putin gave in the lead up to this, um, he said a lot of things that just don't seem to, well, a few things that don't match up at all with reality. I think there were some things he said where, okay, I sort of get what he means when it comes to like um, concerns, uh, security concerns about NATO expansion. But there were other things he said that I, I, I've talked to, you know, Ukraine and Russia scholars about it, and, and they're not seeing any of this. So, uh, for example, um, the claims that there's, you know, genocide going on against Russians, I, I don't see any evidence of that. And even scholars I know who have traditionally thought the U.S. is too anti-anti-Putin, um, mm -hmm. uh, or, or is too anti-Putin. So uh, Too pro-anti-Putin. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you can be anti-Putin, but moderately anti-Putin. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what like I was going to say. But even, even those people, people like um, Ivan Kachanovsky at, at the University of Ottawa, he has said there's no evidence that there's a, a genocide being committed uh, by Ukrainians against, against Russian elements um, and that this invasion has no basis in that regard. So, you know, it, it seems like claims are being made by Putin in these speeches that, you know, are really far from reality or, you know, coming from an alternate reality, maybe. Yeah, well, it's interesting because in some ways what he's doing is trying to repurpose some of the human rights, even woke language of um, Western liberalism as his in his justification for the war in some when, ways it sounds uh -huh. like at points he was saying you know the you know the un would be good but it's we live in this sort of us-led order and it's not equal and it's not fair it seems like he was trying to sort of go that uh direction and, and sort of with his framing yeah and the uh, one of the constant refrains out of russia under Putin has been that the world is endangered by unipolarity and that a multipolar world where other great powers, regional powers can pursue interests 
outside of a Western liberal framework would be better for mankind. And the UN gives him, gives Russia um, institutionalized influence through its Security Council veto and the uh, General Assembly has many non-aligned countries that could be persuaded to a Russian line with the proper combination of rhetoric and inducements. So an outcome that not just Putin, but Yeltsin, the kind of 1990s um, best case scenario that Russia hoped for was a movement away from American-led security institutions like NATO towards handling security problems through a genuine multilateral universal uh, forum like the United Nations. One reason why the Kosovo, um, and maybe this, this would be a good place to sort of discuss the whole NATO, um, the NATO angle. And, and real quick, I, I want to say, mm-hmm. it's my understanding that Putin was not always necessarily as anti-NATO when he was younger. And maybe his views changed on that a little. I, I mean, Varn and I were talking about that, uh, but I, I don't know if you disagree or if you think uh, we're off base on that. So the situation at the end of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union is dissolved, it's gone, the Warsaw Pact dissolved, the entire post-socialist space is in economic disarray, very desperate, very desperate economic conditions. Um, under the, in Yeltsin's first term, they just stopped paying public sector employees. So he had two years of arrears to make good on um, before his re-election campaign. And the, uh, in that world, the Russian interpretation wasn't that the US won the Cold War, but that the Soviet Union, the people of the Soviet Union had taken the high ground and ended it themselves by this kind of ideological suicide. Um, this domestic Russian revolution against the totalitarian Soviet order, which had broken, which had failed. And the new world that they hoped for was one in which the old Cold War structures, not only on the Eastern Bloc side, but also on the Western Bloc side, could come down. You could have uh, general disarmament. You would revert to organizations like the UN for um, for uh, global security matters and for global governance. And it wouldn't just be the United States triumphantly imposing um, its model on a prostate Eastern Bloc. And, and in that way, I guess it, there would have been more equal footing between, say, the U.S., Russia, and, and various other countries. Exactly. W- within that framework, yeah. Exactly. And uh, But NATO stuck around. And the first justification for keeping NATO came with German reunification. And the Soviet Union still existed. Mikhail Gorbachev was still premier. The question what happens with a reunified Germany? Do they get kicked out of NATO or do they stay in NATO? 
And he was persuaded, uh, Gorbachev was persuaded to accept uh, a NATO Germany because of the fear that a Germany outside of a collective defense arrangement might remilitarize. But at that point, the bargain was, we let you let Germany in, not one inch further east. But that, you know, like uh, to quote Darth Vader, um, they changed the deal. I pray they don't change it further. And first, it was the Visegrad group, uh, Poland, Hungary, and um, the Czech Republic that were admitted. But then expansion and continued eastwards and southwards. The when Poland was accepted, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary, the New Deal was okay. We moved. Um, further east, but don't worry, we'll never step in post-Soviet space, right? These countries were never Soviet. They have uh, a right to their own um, sovereign decisions regarding their security, and they have deep-rooted anxieties about their security situation, right? If you leave Poland out of NATO, Poland might, for instance, remilitarize because it worries about the, the Russian threat. And that wouldn't be great. So let's extend the American umbrella over Poland so they don't panic. But then that deal, again, was changed with the admission of the Baltic states. And now you have this um, anti-Soviet bloc that has somehow outlived the Soviet Union that's moved all the way up to um, essentially the, the outskirts of St. Petersburg within striking distance of St. Petersburg. Um, incidentally, this was why Finland was neutralized because uh, Finland that belonged to NATO would also have brought um, the Western Alliance and its bases, its infrastructure, its weapons, its joint command, much too close to Soviet territory, much too close to Russian territory. So this was a series of betrayals um, from the Russian perspective. And this was compounded by, um, most of all, the Kosovo intervention. The everything else had been done with at least a certain respect for norms and legalities. The When the Soviet Union broke down, it broke down along the highest level of federation. If you were a Soviet socialist republic, you had the choice to become independent. All of them opted for it. Uh, similarly, when Yugoslavia broke apart, it was a federation. It had these constituent republics. If you were a republic, you could claim independence. That was something that um, the uh, Russian, um, Russian representatives, Boris Yeltsin, were grudgingly willing to accept, even though they had lingering sympathies for Yugoslavia and Serbia especially. However, Kosovo was not a federal level republic. Kosovo was an integral part of Serbia. No one questioned that. And on this human rights pretext, from the Russian perspective, NATO, this anti-Soviet, somehow still around uh, power alliance circumvents the UN Security Council, where 
uh, Russia had a veto, in order to invade a sovereign country and detach a core part of its territory because it felt like it and nobody could stop them. And all of the protests and um, opposition of Russia, which included um, some pretty ballsy maneuvers, for instance, when it was clear that NATO was going in, uh, Boris Yeltsin sent an elite unit of, of uh, Russian forces to capture Pristina Airport so that Russians would be on the ground by the time NATO arrived. And they didn't shoot at each other. They didn't fight. They actually greeted each other like, oh, hello, partners. Right um, Now let's talk about what happens in Kosovo. And Yeltsin believed that this would be enough to give him a voice in determining the future of Kosovo. But um, they, those troops were forced to very unceremoniously and very rapidly be a hasty retreat back to Russia while NATO imposed the conditions that um, it felt like. It didn't even adjust the borders of Kosovo um, to exclude the, a very small sliver of um, Serbian majority territory. So um, the arbitrariness and the unilateral nature of this American-led NATO was very threatening um, from the Russian perspective, because if they could do this to Serbia, um, and remember too, Russia at this point is a mess, right? The central government can barely, isn't able to pay its employees, the economies in ruins. Well, it was a, it was a devastated nation, which I, I think is an important nation. point because you combine that with all this NATO talk and I, you can almost see that there's going to be um, rising nationalist sentiments mm -hmm. within Russia because of all this. Yes, and the it dawned on Russians, um, especially members of the sort of former state elite like Putin um, in the late 90s that they'd been had, right? That they were defeated people, um, that the Americans were constantly telling them, you know, oh, you're liberated, you're free, we don't hate you. And yet um, they were being treated as um, a broken and defeated country. Yeah, I, I always the, tell people, it, it feels like in the immediate aftermath of the Soviet Union, maybe this is going too far how I'm putting it, but we sort of treated Russia as like an injured dog that we could kick around. Yeah, I mean, an injured dog that you kick around, not an injured dog that you bind its wounds and you feed it and you look after it, but an injured dog that you kick around. And that um, experience for we're well removed from the end of communism at this point. So there are many Russians today that don't really have a memory of this period. But those that do, that's part of Putin's appeal. He's the one who ended this um, age of chaos and decay. He put an end to the time of troubles. And what followed wasn't necessarily great. You could quibble about it. There were all kinds of problems, all kinds of abuses, which is why um, opposition figures like Navalny have um, a following. But um, at least it's not as bad as it was then. That's kind of kind of uh, Putin's last resort. And 
the uh, and I think that part of why you have a Russian state that's willing to go along with this violent uh, redressing of um, or violent rebalancing of power in uh, Ukraine, right, in the Russian um, near abroad, as they call it, is that the uh, you don't want to be that weak again. If you are that weak, then the Americans and the Westerners, for all their talk of human rights, for all their talk of, of democracy, are going to pounce like they did before. And the only thing that deters them is force. Uh, that's the only thing they respect. That's the only reason they ever talk to Russia um, to do anything other than issue commands. It's only when they're afraid. It's only when they're um, when they know that Russia can push back, that Russia can assert them, uh, itself, that you can get any kind of um, equitable reciprocal relationship with the West. Otherwise, in other words, the country's hardliners have sort of won out. Yes. And, you know, in the 90s, you had American leaders coming in to American, uh, American experts, American academics, American economists coming in to help write the Russian constitution, to re-engineer and privatize the, the Russian economy. And they were given a free hand because many Russians, especially Yeltsin, especially those reformers, uh, accepted the narrative of American good intentions and also the narrative of American unique expertise. But then it turned out that it was um, it was a con job that many of the experts uh, connived either as dupes. I think Jeffrey Sachs was um, was arrogant and clueless, but there were others, um, including um, I want to say I don't want to get his name wrong, but there was a Harvard economist who was protected by Larry Summers um, uh, that was actively um, conspiring to um, personally enrich himself through exploiting the um, the uh, privatization process. Uh, Andre Schleifer, uh, I believe. And so the fear of the West is justified by experience. Now, and I believe there was debate about some of these things in the US at the time. There, there was debate about NATO expansion. I mean, people oh, yes. like uh, the father of containment, George Kennan, uh, opposed it. I think Paul Nitza who is mm -hmm. sort of one of the architects of the neocons, thought it was a bad idea. So there was even debate in the U.S. about NATO expansion and how Russia would view it, right? George H.W. Uh, Bush, he was castigated for what's called his Chicken Kiev speech, where he uh, was very tepid about the idea of breaking up the Soviet Union. That generation of realists and strategists saw a power vacuum as a great potential risk, much greater than maintaining the structures of authority, the systems, the bureaucracies, the um, agencies of the Soviet Union, but just reorienting them. And the um, 
realists like that, you know, to, to put a name on the, on the group you describe. Um, and we can also say John Mearsheimer, Stephen Cohen, um, they recognized that in, you know, to, to go back to the 90s, history wasn't over. Um, that history hadn't ended. And, and, and just still, to be clear here, well, go on, I'm sorry. Oh, and, and so you still had to contend with what happens when um, Russia begins to reestablish itself. Um, we can't just let the market handle everything. Um, we need to include Russia in some of our structures. And as NATO expanded um, eastwards, and this is where I think you say that Putin, um, the idea that Putin wasn't necessarily anti-NATO uh, comes up. He was asked once if Russia had any interest in joining NATO. And he said, well, yeah, that would be great one day. The reality was that as soon as you let Poland in, Russia was never going to be allowed in because the whole point of NATO, if you're an Eastern tier European country, is to protect you from Russia. If you let Russia in, then what good is the alliance? Because now the fox is in the hen house. And uh, so I think that that response and the um, relative uh, quietness of the first 10 years of Putin's rule were uh, stemmed from a recognition of Russia's weakness and a hope that some kind of um, reset or some kind of um, arrangement could be brokered with the West that- Well, there, there was that whole Russian reset under precisely. Obama. Yeah. Yes. And that had potential to, um, to bear fruit until the Maidan uprising and the change of government in Ukraine. That killed it from the Russian perspective because this was considered to be the absolute height of, um, of American unilateralism and overreach. The Russians were willing to accept that in order to validate, in order to be legitimate in the international order, a government had to be democratic. And that um, you had elections which were going to decide the leadership of Ukraine. Within the Ukrainian elect electoral and constitutional order, you could back your guy, they could back um, the reformer, quote unquote, and let the best, best man win. When the Russian-backed candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, is in power, the Maidan uprising, which is an extra-constitutional violent protest, um, removes him, a democratically elected leader, from office uh, to replace him with a uh, very anti-Russian and pro-American interim government. The subsequent elect elected governments still exist in that American-leaning framework. Part of that is the Russian decision to take Crimea um, and to support separatists in the Donbass, but um, those moves came after the overthrow of a democratically elected leader. And, you know, clear violation of Ukrainian sovereignty and clear the American and NATO sponsorship of some of the elements of the Maidan movement. 
from the Russian perspective, represent a violation of Ukrainian sovereignty. Therefore, you know, everything is possible, right? We're, um, we're in the Wild West, no rules apply, and, and Russia has to look out for itself. The subsequent governments, uh, Poroshenko and uh, uh, Zelensky, have inherited that pro-American, pro-NATO orientation. Um, they've inherited um, the mobilized far right, including the Azov Battalion, and they've inherited the security conundrum of Crimea and the um, separatist republics. The Minsk Agreement, which was supposed to put an end to those conflicts and establish some kind of diplomatic path to a permanent settlement. The both sides accuse each other of violating um, the terms of the deal and both sides fail to live up to their side of the deal. So it was essentially stillborn, which meant that by uh, 2023, where um, 2022, sorry, one year ahead of myself, um, you have a relationship, a security problem in uh, Ukraine, which is no longer under any type of framework for a peaceful resolution. And, and I think that uh, Putin brought Minsk up in his speeches recently. Yes. And it was precisely in this way that um, because Russia is accused of violating two agreements on uh, Ukrainian sovereignty. One is the, I want to say, Budapest Agreement, the, um, which in exchange for the surrender of nuclear weapons from the successor states of the USSR, including Ukraine, um, Russia, NATO, the US would guarantee the sovereignty and territorial integrity of, of Russia, from, of Russia, of Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, and the others. Uh, from the Russian perspective, the, that deal was violated in the Orange Revolution and nullified because that was, uh, the Orange Revolution was popular. It was genuine. It wasn't just uh, an astroturf, you know, um, um, up, you know Iranian um, restoration of the Shah type deal built and executed by the CIA, but it had uh, legitimate grievances, Russians participated, but there was through NGOs, through civil society organizations, also clear support from American official sources and official sources elsewhere in the West. So that's the violation um, that nullifies the Budapest Agreement. Then the Minsk Agreement, uh, the Minsk uh, process, which was supposed to follow after uh, 2014, the accusation is that um, Ukraine is planning operations against Crimea and separatist republics. That's a clear violation of the terms of that agreement. So that's also null and void. And it's true. The Ukrainian um, Ministry of Defense in its um, official plans included explicit mention of operations against Crimea and, um, and the separatist republics. So Putin has the goods on that. That while that's true, it doesn't justify a large scale invasion of your neighbor.
So this gets into a point I wanted to get into this idea of, you know, Ukraine remaining neutral because you had uh, Putin saying, I want Ukraine to remain neutral, so not allied to NATO. Then you had Biden saying, we're, we're not going to make them part of NATO. So I don't know what he's upset about. What's really going on there? Because I, I think there probably is concern um, from the NATO perspective about Russia in the sense that, you know, maybe they fear that uh, Ukraine is a gateway from which Russia could menace NATO aligned countries, um, or at least that's what I've heard from uh, the sort of more NATO aligned uh, people. Um, so what, what's your take on all that? So I think that the there's different perspectives on um, what NATO membership means, depending on whether you're in the West ready or you're you, you cut out. These... You said there's different perspectives depending on that it cut out. Could you repeat that? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Um, there's different perspectives depending on if you're in the Western camp already, if you're in the Russian camp already, or if you're one of these in-between countries trying to um, find your place in the security order. The it, it neutralized Ukraine um, would, that would facilitate Russia, that would be more advantageous to Russia than the West because Russia is closer, Russia is, uh, Ukraine is intrinsically more vulnerable. And the, if so long as Ukraine is outside of the EU, the economic center of gravity is pulling Ukraine eastwards towards Russia. So so also, what what does it mean? Like, what do we mean when we say Ukraine neutral? Like what, what, could you explain mm-hmm. it beyond the like the the, the uh, sort of jargon there? Okay, so one uh, the model is Finland. Uh, Finland and Austria were two European states, which after the um, end of World War II were on the fault line between the Warsaw Pact and NATO, and both sides were willing to um, offer to accept their neutralization, which meant that they would not be part of either bloc. They would not host um, bases or infrastructure or weapons belonging to any outside country. They would not join in any security institutions, any multilateral security institutions, and that significant foreign policy moves um, would be subject to a veto essentially an informal veto uh, from either the Soviets or the Americans. Within that context, Austria and Finland did very well. They joined the EU, they developed economically, they have a high degree of civil liberties, functioning democracies. That all of that was not seen as problematic by the Soviets because they realized that within that bipolar order, the hard power of um, the Red Army versus NATO was much more significant than, you know, Finland or Finland or Austria would not determine the issue if you could tip them one way or another. So leave them alone. 
And a similar deal for Ukraine would be tolerable for uh, Putin, uh, partly because he's he was confident that in that environment, he'd be able to offer Ukraine uh, a good enough deal so that they would join with Belarus, Kazakhstan, and the other sort of post-Soviet republics in a Russo-centric Eurasian Union. What uh, triggered the Maidan uprising was um, actually when Yanukovych was um, forced to decide between the Eurasian Union and opening talks on EU accession. EU accession is the holy grail, much more valuable than NATO admission for Eastern European post-socialist countries. EU accession for individuals means you can study, travel, live anywhere in the EU, Paris, you know, London, back, back before Brexit, Berlin. You could um, be part of this European safe, secure, prosperous party zone um, individually. For countries, it meant access to regional transfer funds, which are just are designed to take money from the wealthy center to peripheral regions and encourage their development. That's how Ireland, that's how Spain um, developed rapidly um, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, as well as infrastructure, as well as agricultural subsidies, which could be incredibly valuable and life-changing for the people receiving them. So the EU membership, although everybody understood that it would be a long process, that was a dream worth following. Yanukovych scuppered it, and that's how you get a critical mass to support the uprising. It wasn't just American stooges, it wasn't just the far right, those elements were there, but because of the frustration of the EU dream, the offer to open talks, um, that was what motivated a mass of Ukrainians to participate in the overthrow of Yanukovych. So it's interesting uh, that the EU comes up there because I think uh, Zelensky today was urging the EU to admit Ukraine immediately into the union. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. And the um, that would be, like I said, that would be a, a radical opportunity for Ukraine. And the EU has said that they announced yesterday, I believe, that um, they want Ukraine to be a part of um, the, uh, a member of the European Union, but it takes a long time for EU accession to actually take place. It took about 13 years for Poland from the signing of an association agreement to membership. Even if we cut that in half because we say that Ukraine has already taken some of the steps, that's six years. And asking for um, immediate membership, that's something of a non-starter because membership involves absorbing thousands of pages of EU law into your own administration. It's a lengthy process, even when you're not fighting an existential war. So he would need, Ukraine would need some kind of extraordinary rapid um, 
sped up process, which would invariably create all kinds of uh, executive problems into how do you do the transfer payments? How do you handle migration? Um, but it would also be transformative for Ukraine and it would give the Ukrainians uh, even greater cause to mobilize and fight Russia. I think that um, the EU needs to, if this is anything other than a cynical PR move and a ploy to get Ukrainians to, to fight more, fight longer, kill more Russians, um, the EU needs to demonstrate that it will be expediting um, that process so that people can potentially benefit from it before the war is settled. And going back a little, um, Russian gains are steady. Ukrainian cities are being encircled. The Ukrainian forces are being encircled. So, um, and the American invasion of Iraq took about 28 days to conclude. We're in day five of this war. Russians are already in Kiev. And the, the battle continues, but they've already reached the capital. They've already reached Kharkov. They've, um, their operations are, uh, they've taken losses, absolutely. And there are points of weakness in their operations, but, but they but are still I, winning. What I was going to say is, I, what worries me about some of the triumphalism I'm seeing mm -hmm. um, about the situation right now, like, oh, Ukraine is, is going to beat Russia and it's, it's like almost a done deal. I, I think a lot more Ukrainians could end up really hurt uh, or dead. And I don't think we should just give this false impression that, you know, uh, oh, everything's just going great, uh, even if it's, you know, for propaganda purposes and to keep morale up. I, I think it's giving a people I think it's giving people a false vision of hope. Yes. And um, I think that the uh, this was also the case with the EU promise and then the NATO promise after the Maidan uprising. Uh, the West is terrible with. Um, making these promises and producing these beautiful visions of the the, the future for um, countries like Georgia, countries like Ukraine, uh, countries like Iraq, which they fail to do anything to actually bring about. And worse, they also fail to do anything to mitigate the dangers that pursuing that dream provokes from other actors. And to tell Ukraine that they can join NATO while they have um, active territorial disputes, which violate clause five of um, the uh, NATO treaty, they, uh, it's a lie. And it's a lie which makes Ukrainians take steps that put them at risk and then lead to terrible consequences. Um, so I think that the, um, the West with this triumphalism too, and with promises of, you know, we'll give you weapons, we'll impose. 
Why, why are they making sanctions. these promises, though? Is it is it just using Ukraine as a pawn in some ways? I, I mean, I don't want to go that far to say that, but. Um, well, the ruling apparatus in Western countries is heterogeneous, right? Um, you have in D.C., for instance, some blood drinking neocons that are happy to use Ukrainians as a pawn. Um, you also have, um, and I'd say the majority of the civilian um, security, the civilian staff and security apparatus, and a lot of military officers too, you know, are high on their own supply. They um, believe that the moral mission or the extraordinary character or the arc of history compels change in a certain direction and that they need to be forward on this. Um, it it need... reminds me of that line that uh, Brzezinski gave to the, the Mujahideen. He said, you see that hill over there, that hill is yours. You know, that mosque is yours. God is on your side. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the, um, the, it's the blowback that comes when those promises are dashed or those, that vision of the future is falsified is kind of a problem for somebody else. And this also feeds into the structure of especially the American state where you have regular alteration of personnel from power. Uh, somebody like uh, Shogu or Putin or Lavrov in Russia, there's personal continuity in, the, in their uh, positions at, uh, in the military, their positions in uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And you have long-term planning as a result. But if you're going to be in and out in four, best case scenario, eight years, then you have to make your mark personally um, in, in order to matter. Uh, you have to do something radical. And you don't have to worry about the consequences because by the time the second and third order effects come back to haunt you, somebody else will be in charge, will be their problem. And the, um, the notion of America as boundlessly wealthy, boundlessly powerful, and on the right side of history also means that you can default to, well, you know, they'll figure it out. Right, like they all, we've always figured it out. We've never lost. We'll muddle through, even if there's no clear plan on, on the next stage. But we're seeing what that looks like, right? The um, Clinton administration never created a security structure for Europe that included Russia. They kicked around Russia like a, a wounded dog, but the blowback wasn't going to. In, during his term, it was going to come later. You didn't even have to think about it, and so you could, could tell yourself. Could we get blowback from? I, I mean, if if false promises are made to Ukraine, let's say this all ends at some point, is it possible that maybe Ukrainians will remember that, and there will be more anti-Western sentiments over false promises being made? Oh yes, absolutely. The um, you know. Just ask the Iraqis what they think of American liberation, right? Um, the the um, if you're left hang to um, if you're left to hung out to dry like that, 
than um, the certain sets segments of uh, Ukrainian society, especially if you think about the nationalist elements that don't necessarily like uh, multiculturalism, don't necessarily like um, democracy. If they feel betrayed by this decadent, um, you know, homosexual EU America um, wokosphere, then it's quite possible that you have militancy targeted against uh, the West as much as it is against Russia, or potentially even uh, in a post-Putin Russia, you have some kind of pan-Slavism that emerges because of this feeling of mutual abandonment and mutual exploitation by the West. So that's the type of blowback that you do have to worry about. Um, the, there's also the possibility that you end up with a failed state right there in the heart of um, in the heart of Europe, one with excellent hackers, one with great military technology, and one with very poor and desperate people that are just trying to stay alive. That's going to be a danger in and of itself. You mean because when, when you say with military technology, do you mean in part because we're arming them or? In part, but also uh, Ukraine has an arms industry that is uh, non-trivial and um, weaponry that is effective, especially when uh, Western weapons, things, the F-35 might be the best example. If it is up to spec and operating as intended, it totally dominates the airspace. But one bad line of code and the whole thing is grounded. You know, one error, one widget out of place and the weaponry breaks down. Plus, you have to have an immense logistical footprint just to support that system. Uh, Russian weapons, Soviet weapons, were designed to be like the AK-47, the exact opposite. You know, you bury it in the sand and it still shoots 10 years later. Um, so that type of Ukrainian, that type of arms industry exists in Ukraine. And it wouldn't be great if it were um, run by criminal syndicates or um, other you know, malign actors. Um, given that we're, we're about an hour, maybe we should look at some of the questions from the, from the Twitter. Yeah, I, I wanted to do that actually, yeah. but uh, first I wanted to ask one more thing. Um, of course. So since we sort of talked about the nationalist um, elements in Ukraine or even ultra-nationalist elements, um, I'm very conflicted about how people are talking about this because I see some people acting as if all of Ukraine or all of Western Ukraine uh, are just clones of Stepan Bandera. Yeah, um, exactly. On the other right. hand, I've been very annoyed to see people like um, former CIA agent and um, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, uh, John Cipher, saying, no, that Bandera was actually a uh, just a great man and a liberationist. And, uh, you know, he's like the Malcolm X of, of um, yeah. Ukraine. And I... I'm sorry, but I have family that came from Ukraine and I don't have a high opinion of, of Bandera. Um, so how, how are we to talk about um, the legacy of Bandera and some of these ultra-nationalist elements without going in either of those two directions? Well, the when I think about uh, Stepan Bandera and the, the entire like the um, United Ukraine Army um, or all of those anti-Soviet for forces during World War II. 
it's impossible for me to separate them from their collaboration with Nazi Germany and their participation in the Holocaust, ethnic cleansing of Poles, um, uh, mass murder of, of Jews and um, Roma, you name it, they were- it, It's hard to talk about in some ways because there's been, I think a lot of revisionism around Bandera and the Ukrainian insurgent army, but when you really look at the facts, I mean, they were collaborationists, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they received um, awards from the Third Reich. And that's, for me, that alone is not dispositive. Uh, Finland was a reluctant ally of um, the Third Reich because of its security situation. However, Mannheim resisted any um, any introduction of um, Nazi-style race laws or uh, repression of um, the targets of the Third Reich within Finland. Um, so if the Ukrainian nationalists had behaved like him, then I'd put them in a much more forgivable category. But he killed tens of thousands of innocent civilians just for their ethnic background or their heritage. And that, and we're not even talking about um, colonizers, right? We're talking about vulnerable minorities, um, peasants often. So they're murderers and they shouldn't be anybody's hero. I realized that- So he for, de definitely not the, the Malcolm X of Ukraine. No, no. The, but, you know, that's the thing, right? Like under conditions of like World War II where you're facing the Soviets, you've got the Nazis um, and the, you feel like the existence of your nation is at stake. It's easy for insiders who see it in those kinds of apocalyptic terms Right. Yeah, it, it makes sense why some adopted him as a hero. Yeah. Yes. But um, he cannot be rehabilitated by the West. Um, that would frankly, yeah, I'm not moralizing. I'm not saying it, it would be a bad thing to do. Um, I'm saying that it would be a violation of like fundamental intellectual integrity. You would have to, it would be a great lie. Um, and it's, as a result, it's very difficult when you have um, patriotic, personally brave, well-organized, valiant militias and military units that are effective at fighting um, Russia, but whose mythology is based on um, the reverence of figures that are mass murderers. And, the it's like I, I don't know what you do about that i certainly don't think that you empower them um i think well, that at, at least it, i think in the west you can just be honest and not valorize a, a figure like bandera i i just yes. i don't know how anyone can do that it, it, it's yes that's over the line for me and it, it goes beyond just trying to support ukrainian it's it goes into um you know, falsifying history. Precisely, um, it goes into falsifying, just in the same way that uh, the Russian claims of genocide against uh, the Russian minority in Ukraine are also, frankly, lies. The, there were um, 
attacks um, during Maidan and after Maidan on uh, ethnic Russians and Russian aligned, um, the Russian aligned Communist Party. I, I don't, I shouldn't even say Russian aligned. The Communist Party um, lost uh, a number of members, including very young people, to a fire that was deliberately started by as of battalion types. Um, 16 people burned to death and the uh, thugs were there to prevent them from escaping the building and to prevent anybody from helping them after they started the fire. So that's that's a hate crime, that's an atrocity. However, it takes more than one or two or 10 such events to add up to genocide. So like any good lie, any good piece of propaganda has a kernel of truth to it, but for a genocide accusation, Putin is extending the facts so far that he's in the, the realm of fabrication and falsehood. Um, also, I, I have to ask, and, and this can be brief, we'll get right into questions after this, but um, so the issue of sanctions has come up a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Anatole Levin, who I, I told you earlier, I, I highly respect him and a lot of his analysis on this. Uh, he said immediately after this happened, we're going to have to isolate Russia diplomatically and sanctions are going to have to be necessary. And he, he's not someone that is pro-sanctions. On the other hand, I'm also seeing reports that the Russian people are not going to be able to withstand the really serious sanctions that are being talked about. Um, I guess my concern is uh, with sanctions that if the sanctions are bad enough and, and hurt uh Russians enough, they're going to remember that. And that could just give us another almost um, Putin type figure in the future. But maybe I'm looking too far ahead. I just want to know uh, what your personal thoughts are on this whole issue of sanctions and, and how to deal with this situation. Well, I think that it's too soon to assess how stringent the sanctions are actually going to be. We're in the first week of the war. Everybody is staking out a position, you know, um, stand with Ukraine. Everyone is, is virtue signaling at this point. Forgive me for saying it. And so these announcements that we're going to do this to Russia, we're going to do that to Russia, we're going to block airspace, we're going to um, kick them out of FIFA, we're going to prevent them from uh, participating in the Olympics. All of those moves are, at this point, symbolic. We'll see how strictly applied they are. Um, and on the symbolic, the purely symbolic moves, you know, Russia can't play in the World Cup. That's easy to falsify, right? If they're playing in the World Cup, you know that they haven't gone through with it. On economic issues, there's a lot more wiggle room to announce sanctions, but then make a series of exceptions, a little like the oil for food program in Iraq. And so we'll see how the sanctions actually uh, shape up. Right now, they're looking extremely harsh and uh, like a real cordon sanitaire that's cutting off Russia from the rest of the world, air travel. Um, the uh, football, Olympics, um, and of course, 
we're also talking about economic sanctions, trade, um, trade and energy, all kinds of other um, economically essential international um, exchanges that Russia relies on now. But I hasten to point out that whatever um, the bite from all of these disrupted value chains, all of these disrupted uh, supply chains, all of these trading relationships that are severed, investments that are lost, um, you know, property, that the Europeans are seizing oligarchs' yachts, for instance. And people may lose properties in London, properties in New York. Um, the Russia is not Iraq in the sense that they have enough arable land and enough um, agricultural output. They're in one of the world's great exporters of wheat. Russians won't starve. Similarly, when it comes to medicine, Russia was one of the first countries to develop a COVID vaccine. There is enough of a domestic economy to meet basic needs of Russians. The, not only that, but, um, and this came, was a very deliberate move. Um, three weeks ago, there was a friendship treaty signed with Russia and China. And China has um, signaled that it will be the market of last resort for major Russian exports. They previously had limits on uh, Russian wheat imports as a sort of protectionist measure. They've removed those entirely. They'll buy all the Russian wheat. They'll presumably buy all the Russian gas as soon as infrastructure is, is adequate. And they, as the world's factory, can also replace many of the suppliers that Russia um, has previously purchased from in the West. So these sanctions are unlikely to cause the kind of generalized immiseration that you saw in Iraq. What's more likely to happen is an economic reorientation towards China and a period of stress and turbulence as the Russian financial system and supply chains go through that reorientation with some businesses failing, some people losing uh, their livelihoods, their, their savings, but it will not be an Iraq type. We're pushing them back to the stone age situation. So getting into the listener questions, I, I'll start with C. Derek Varnes since we're both uh, friends of his. Uh, he was wondering what your take is on uh, Turkey and how they figure into all of this. Uh, my friend Eric Dreitzer at Counterpunch actually just did a video on this uh, called Putin's Quagmire. Is this Turkey's gain? Um, there's a lot of talk about where Turkey uh, sort of fits in here. So uh, if you can address that. Well, if you ever had a non-Eastern European security ask to make of Russia, this is the moment. Because at this point, they need everyone they can get. And everything that isn't directly related to the outcome of the Ukrainian war is now negotiable. So, but it goes both ways, right? The United States is strongly pushing for Western unity, international multilateral sanctions, uh, and the globalization of um, the American response. So 
Um, Turkey, presumably, if it's a canny um, third party, will be looking at the different combination of threats and promises that both sides can offer uh, before opting for one over the other. And the Turkey has closed its straits to Russian warships. However, that came a couple of days after first refusing to do that when the Ukrainians asked. So I think that there's bargaining going on behind the scenes and the uh, Turks are looking at what how they can come out ahead of this. They don't really care that much about the fate of Ukraine. Um, a too strong Russia on the Black Sea is not great for them. But then again, um, given the breakdown of relations between Turkey and the other NATO powers, having a strongly Western-aligned Ukraine um, also isn't wonderful. So they can afford to shop around. And then we have a question. Um, I don't know how to word this one, but uh, someone was referencing a 2014 phone call that. Um, oh, Victoria Newland. Th- yeah, Victoria Newland, uh, who, for people that don't know, uh, she was like a Secretary of State, I believe, um, which talked about uh, what you were saying earlier with uh, Maidan and. Um, U.S. uh, support for that. Uh, So they ask, so how much blame for Russia's invasion should be put on NATO expansionism versus covert U.S. expansionism? So I don't think the two are easily separable. And I think that the covert uh, color revolution style uh, regime change that Victoria Newland uh, was conniving in uh, over uh, Maidan, that was part of the U.S. diplomatic playbook um, through the entire post-Cold War period. In fact, you know, you could go all the way back to uh, Iran and the um, the ouster of Mossadegh, point to something similar happening there, and the bureaucratic movement of NATO is just one dimension of an overall security apparatus that was committed to isolating Russia, pushing against, um, pushing as far into um, Eastern Europe as possible. I'm curious, I'd be curious to know, and I, I can't say for sure, based on what I do know now, um, to what extent Victoria Newland was um, improvising in a period of crisis versus following a doctrine or directed directions coming in from um, DC. Certainly, uh, the Maidan uprising was as much a headache as an opportunity for Barack Obama. And it scuppered completely the idea of uh, a reset and. Um, for his presidency, there there was no real upside. It was just um, one problem after another. So this could be a situation where because of the rapid movement of events and the 
uh, autonomy and authority that an assistant secretary of state enjoys in a turbulent country like uh, Ukraine in that uh, time period, she may have gone far beyond her remit and delivered uh, operational victory that was that ran counter to the strategic objectives of a more sane um, DC overall policy. I don't know that, I couldn't tell you, but um, I think that the two elements can't be easily disentangled. Um, this is NATO, how much of this is you know covert American operations. Um, it's possible that this is all just Victoria Newland. Um, but if it isn't, if it isn't that case where she had the ability, like a sort of 19th century ambassador to make policy uh, autonomously, then um, there's no daylight between the Washington direction that NATO gets and the Washington direction that um, the CIA, the State Department, or other aspects of the security apparatus receive. And then we have a question about actions internal to Russia that could lead to uh, Putin being removed from power. The the only thing I would add to that before asking more about it is it, it seems like there's a lot of people that are like former military uh, within uh, Russia that even before the invasion were really angry with Putin. There was that letter uh, from the Soviet general uh, Ivashov. And there's it, it seems like Putin wasn't always on base with uh, people in his national security establishment. There's now a video uh, that people can watch of um, Putin acting very, you know, almost like mob boss-ish, staring down his spy chief, um, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce because I'll butcher it, uh, before the invasion. And the spy chief was saying, I, I think we should try diplomacy more. And Putin was like, no, no. You know, so it, it seems like there could be elements within uh, Russia that are very, you know, unhappy with Putin right now. Well, that's um, that may be the case. There, in any given country, right? Imagine all of the elements in North Korea that are unhappy with Kim Jong Un. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't matter, right? You could be the most unpopular dictator in the world, but if you have a system of repression that's effective, if you prevent the mobilization and organization of oppositional forces, if you can keep them atomized and alone, mutually suspicious, then you can weather um, any kind of criticism. And apart from the, these high-level dissidents, um, there's groups like the Night Wolves, there's uh, fascist paramilitaries and popular nationalist movements in Russia that are very pro-Putin, that he's their guy. Um, also, I think I, that- I, I was gonna say in that regard, I, I think it's important we say this, but uh, you know, Biden talked about how obviously this is all about reconstructing the Soviet Union. I, I'm not sure that uh, Putin is, is trying to bring back, uh, you know, communism. Oh, uh, he- we have the receipts, right? The way that he spoke about the USSR, the the fact that he blamed Lenin for the existence of Ukraine. Yeah, uh, basically he's saying, you know, uh, Lenin and, and, and the USSR betrayed us. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He, his Russia is the czarist empire. And 
um, that sort of trans-historical, orthodox, traditional Russian world, uh, Ruskimir. Um, Would that put that him in line with like the the sort of white Russian elements that were against the Bolsheviks? Well, he's not a monarchist. That would be yeah, the big, yeah. big difference. And um, but yeah, like he would have been, um, you know, he'd hated he'd have hated Kerensky for being a liberal. He'd have hated Lenin for not being a Russian nationalist. And he would look for uh, someone like, um, like. Um, a Alexander Nevsky or Boris Budinov, um, a, a figure on Ivan the Terrible, right? That uh, a strong leader that understood the Russian soul and had the ruthlessness and will to um, make Russia great again. And I think that he's not interested in one reason we can say that he's not interested in reconstructing the Soviet Union is uh, he's made no moves to um, annex or, or absorb um, any Central Asian republics. Those territories, those states are actually some of the most vulnerable to Russian pressure, but as long as they don't join NATO, as long as they don't connive with his enemies, uh, he's fine leaving them to their own devices. Um, to the point where when Kazakhstan recently went through protests and um, turbulence, uh, the Russians came in, they sorted it out, and then they left. They weren't there to stay. He likes that role in this um, periphery that isn't sufficiently Russian. Uh, and that's a deal that Ukraine probably could get if it wanted, where you guys more or less do what you want, but you know we'll intervene if if you can't keep order in your own house and we'll tell you if we need you to do anything and you better do it um yeah someone spoke to me recently that they get the impression that putin just views ukraine as like ungovernable and he has you know a a paternalistic streak like i'm going to be the one that takes care of ukraine yeah well i i think that um he doesn't he doesn't see it as a paternalistic obligation to a younger brother, but um, that Ukraine is Russian land. So it's part of his patrimony, right? It's part of uh, the historical legacy of Russia. So he has a duty not to Ukrainians or not to Ukraine, but to Russia to bring Ukraine back into the fold. And it helps that post-Maidan, it's been a mess. And even pre-Maidan, politically, economically, it's been a mess. It's been a struggling country because that feeds into the narrative that on their own, they can't do it. On their own, they're really nothing. So we need to step in. Uh, but it's not about any sort of pan-Slavic humanitarianism. It's about re-establishing um, the security and the power of the Ruski Mir, you know, with Moscow as center. So then uh, just a few more listener questions. I don't know if we can fill all of them, but um, one actually got asked twice. Um, what are the chances? I, I mean, I, I feel like this is a little bit maybe too speculative, but I, I guess people want you to assess whether we could see Zelensky 
being assassinated. So I'll just speak about what Russia has done in the past because I have no special information about Russian assassination operations in Ukraine. When during the Chechen war, the leader of the Chechen opposition to um, to Russia, the, the leader of the Chechen independence movement, uh, Jokar Dudayev, was uh, assassinated by drone strike, um, but it was a specifically targeted um, operation to um, take out the leader um, that had proven himself effective in opposing uh, Russian security objectives. The so and, and you know um, since then there there's credible accusations that. Um, uh, Yushchenko, the le leader of the Orange Revolution and um, anti-Russian uh, Ukrainian uh, political figure, was poisoned with polonium. That uh, Alexander Navalny may have been um, also poisoned. So Russia seems to assassinate people. And the, the question is, would it be in Putin's interest to assassinate Zelensky? It might galvanize Ukrainian opposition, make a post post-war um, settlement even more difficult, especially since you hit Zelensky, there's no guarantee that the next guy won't be an Azov battalion type. I, I was gonna say too, there's also this factor of I, I mean, there's already elements in Ukraine that have said, you know, if Zelensky does anything with regards to making a peace at this point. Uh, we're going to consider him, you know, a, a traitor. A, a, a traitor. He, he's working for the Russians. Yeah, the this is the risk of having, and it, it's not a situation that is unique to Ukraine. In the United States, for instance, there are many police forces which have very strong right-wing elements. In Greece, um, the police was shot through with uh, Golden Dawn uh, members. And if those are the individuals that are authorized to lawfully use lethal force, and they're in theory there to protect you, what happens if ideologically they consider you a despicable enemy? So I think that Navalny has done a very good job of mobilizing a non-ethno-nationalist um, Kind of patriotic resistance to Russia, um, and that's partly a survival move that he has to make, because if he can stake out that role as a wartime president, then it will buy him some insulation from the right-wing elements if he needs to tack away from them at some point. I mean, also, we shouldn't overlook the possibility that he may just be personally courageous, right? He may just be personally invested in um, his leadership of Ukraine, like Putin is in his leadership of Russia. So he's not going to abandon shit. You know, so, it might just be his character. An another question that came up, and I, I want to only deal with this one briefly because I personally don't find it that useful. Uh, they're asking, uh, do you think psychoanalyzing Putin is something worth doing at this point? Or is he just a black box? And all I'll say is, you know, people can say, oh, he's gone mad. Or, or you could say, 
oh, maybe he's just suffering from what a lot of people suffer from when they're in positions of power, which is hubris. I don't think we'll ever know because we're not in Putin's head. Yeah, I, I don't think that um, it's particularly useful to um, psychoanalyze leadership figures. I think that trying to figure out what they want ideologically, right? This doesn't mean that personal factors don't come into play and that you know one leader is the same as the other. It's just a, a place in a game theoretical matrix. It's more that um, they have structures and constraints that limit them, which curtail their degrees of freedom. But they, within those degrees of freedom, their ideological beliefs, their ideological, their you know moral personal commitments, can shape which um, strategy, which viable strategies they choose. So it's useful to think about like. What does Russia? What does Putin believe about Russia? What does he believe about Ukraine? What is his worldview? Because that will shape his priorities, his goals, his objectives, his values. Um, the but to go well, you know, he had a hard upbringing. Um, well, hard compared to who? You know, what's that even mean? Um, so well, I, I even saw some people saying he's doing this because his brother died in Leningrad. And, and I'm like, he was born long after that happened. Like I think 10, 20 years. I don't know if yeah. we could make that connection of how yeah. can we prove any of this? Let's, let's not be the um, Hollywood wine mom who did that slam poetry speech. It's like, if I were your mother, you know, you would know love everywhere. Um, because I mean, come on, we're better than that. Um, also, um, have we learned anything from this conflict about the future of tactics? And this person is specifically interested in, uh, quote unquote, humanitarian objectives like avoiding civilian casualties. I, well, I think it may be too early to tell on some of this. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's too early to tell. And um, in a lot of ways, it's a very standard uh, type of um, mechanized heavy arms drive. Um, the Russians are sort of doing everything by the book. Um, and the choice not to um, target population centers, at least early on when they thought that they didn't have to, has to do with their political objectives post-war. And it's something that has been a staple of um, military campaigns from the very beginning. If you have an enemy that you think is reconcilable to your position, then you're more merciful because you want to get to that outcome. If you're fighting an enemy that you don't value or that you believe will never um, end their resistance, then you're exterminationist. It's, um, it's a rational play from the Roman Empire to modern Ukraine. Uh, we also have someone asking, what should I tell my U.S. lawmakers to do about broad-based sanctions and why? I don't know if you have an answer to that one. So I think that the broad-based sanctions are going to happen, um, and we'll see how porous they get. That's a, one typical um, dynamic with sanctions regimes. 
in the in international relations that uh, they start out the announcements are strong and then they get whittled down as different interest groups um, kind of uh, lobby and petition for for carve outs to benefit them i think that the most important thing is actually accept refugees treat refugees humanely um, don't don't expel russian students don't and there have been people that have suggested expelling i think both russian and chinese students now of this which yeah. is really scary to me yeah and it should be right the that form of collective punishment um i think that on an individual level this these types of conflicts make person-to-person -person, uh, contact more important than ever because once the main lines of tourism, business travel, um, other kinds of routine exchanges, they dry up because of um, all of the disruptions caused by sanctions. I, I just then, wanted to add to that real quick. I, I think you're right that that person to person contact is really necessary because, so I was just watching a, a, a clip that the Lincoln Project did uh, called Mother Russia, where they're really going hard on this is part of a 100 year plan or something you know this is what russia has always did they wanted. get morgan freeman this time <laughs> but i watched that video and i was pretty disgusted because it comes very close in my view to almost taking this view that i i think there are people that have that sort of bloodthirst we talked about in the foreign policy establishment not all of the establishment but I think there are elements that basically look at Russia as, you know, just subhuman barbarians. Yeah, that and they irredeemable just, thoughts. Yeah, and they can't govern, they can't do anything, they can't be trusted ever under any conditions. They're just barbaric. And I think that kind of propaganda is very dangerous at this point in time because I, I don't believe in the collective punishment of Russians. I'm, I'm sorry if anyone listening for some reason does. I would hope not. No, also, um, just like... Putin should be and is thinking about how to create a post-conflict settlement with Ukrainians. Everyone in the West needs to be thinking about how do we reestablish um, a peaceful coexistence with Russia as quickly as possible, because that's the only durable way to prevent this from escalating or spreading. And being punitive to people who are uninvolved in the conflict in any way, who have their own lives, who have their own problems, who may even you know, oppose the war and protest against it, um, just because they're Russian, is going to make mutual understanding and um, a dialogue that could lead to um, shared security um, environment after after this conflict is over, uh, so much more difficult, right? And on both sides too. The the Russian that you refuse to talk to is also missing an opportunity to talk to a Westerner. Um, and the I think that. Um, the fewer people that think of um, 
Westerners is, you know, decadent, Satan-loving, LGBTQ, neolib vampire monsters, the better. And for that reason, we shouldn't play into the narratives that Russian nationalists have about the uh, perfidious West. So I had two more questions just of my own, if you have a second. Sure, um, certainly. So the first is, NATO just announced we're not going ahead with the no-fly zone. Uh, there's a lot of people I know that have said we need to have a no-fly zone. I've personally been a little bit skeptical of that, but I, I wanted your view. What, like, what's NATO's calculus for saying that's probably not a good idea? Oh, they, they don't want a nuclear war. It's a very, very easy calculus. So um, what are people missing when they're saying, oh, we need no-fly zones? Because I'm not sure that everyone saying we need no-fly zones actually knows what that means. Yeah, so what a no-fly zone means is you declare a certain um, territory, the airspace over a certain territory, maybe certain um, altitude ranges where um, military operations are most common. Um, you declare that off limits to belligerent aircraft. In this case, you'd say Russians, if you, you can't fly over Ukraine at these altitudes. And if and you do, what happens? <laughs> precisely. In order to make it work, first, you have to go in and blast the hell out of all of the Russian air defenses. So you're already killing, uh, in, in order to even set up the no-fly zone, you're already killing a bunch of Russian soldiers. So, so um, this is very different, and I want to make this clear for people, because I have seen people say, well, they... They're shutting down commercial airspaces, aren't they? Mm. Isn't that the same thing as a no-fly zone? Mm. And the answer to that is an emphatic no. Read a book. Yes, exactly. Because if you declare a no-fly zone and a Russian helicopter flies through it anyway, the no-fly zone is worthless. The only way that it means anything is if you have the capacity and the will to shoot down any aircraft that violates um, your declared no-fly zone. To do that, first you have to liquidate all of the air defenses that prevent your aircraft from doing the patrolling and monitoring. And then you have to send your aircraft in to shoot down anything that looks like it's violating that no-fly zone. So yeah, that would be World War III. Uh, and therefore, of course, sensibly, NATO has ruled it out. So then the other question I had was, how is this going to affect other countries and other events going on right now? So for instance, uh, I've seen a lot of fear expressed that this will impact the uh, negotiations with Iran. Um, you know, I've also seen people use this uh, to attack Cuba now, um, you know, like verbally and in, on social mm -hmm. media, because I think Cuba um vote against the sanctions against russia how, how does this affect other countries that are outside that sort of sphere of uh ukraine and and russia and maybe some of the western states that we think of so uh there could be a contagion effect like with cuba that any country that isn't sufficiently inside the pro-american pro-western camp begins to suffer the same type of exclusion as russia although honestly the sanctions are still on Cuba. 
right? The embargo is still on coupon. Do you think that maybe Cuba's calculus with this, just a, a an empathy over sanctions? Oh, um, I think that they are they take it for granted that they're going to get nothing from the United States going along with their program. So um, it's very it's a very easy call for them to make. Um, the Apart, you know, we've talked about what Americans do to a country that's that's weak and reaching out, like post-Soviet Russia. Um, we we should also talk about like Iran after September 11th, where there were uh, solidarity protests, and um, the Iranian government um, helped with intelligence coordination. Uh, well, against- in a lot of ways, in some ways, early on in the war on terror, Iran probably had some of the same. Uh, enemies as we did. Yeah, yeah, this is true. But um, it was a type of reaching out and that relationship could have been built on. It wasn't. The Iranians were put back in the box. So um, I think that once you've been castigated, once you've been tarred, then you realize that you shouldn't expect anything from uh, helping the US unless there's a signed seal delivered um, quid pro quo, just don't bother. So, um, it, but would that mean it's not necessarily like, I, I think a lot of people have this idea of they're all conspiring together. Venezuela and Cuba and, and Iran are conspiring with Russia. It could just be other factors as well. Like, well, you know, just yeah. sticking it to the U S well, it's, it's not just sticking it to the U S but if, um, you're Iran, if you're Cuba, if you're Venezuela, and the biggest economies in the world refuse to trade with you, you're including countries that are literally right there. You know, I can see Florida from here. Um, well, you need to trade with someone and that puts you in the uh, club of uh, sanctioned countries. The Iranians and the Chinese and the Russians aren't conniving with each other because they're evil. It's because these are reliable trading partners that aren't going to sanction you, that don't complain about your human rights records and that have stuff you need. Um, so it's an entirely pragmatic call. Uh, I think that um, because of the sanctions, you might see a, a solidifying of a Eurasian trading block based around the uh, Belt and Road Initiative and the uh, overland routes between China, Russia, and the Middle East. Um, that could go along with like a bigger decoupling of the Eurasian economy from the West, which would be painful and difficult. Um, and it would also create more political autonomy in both areas that could potentially lead to more conflict. Um, I think that um, the EU may come out of this stronger. Um, the, they've already begun um, executing some foreign and security policy measures outside of NATO. And part of that is it's less provocative for Russia, but um, what may end up happening is if the Europeans discover that they're able to handle this um, for their continent, um, then they may feel like they don't need the United States um, meddling anymore. Uh, there's a lot of dissatisfaction among not just the European public, the European elites with the way that America conducts foreign policy. So I, I think even um, Putin himself mentioned that in the one, 
I think it was the 27 minute long speech he gave where he said, even, you know, the U.S. aligned nations have their own yes. problems with the U.S. at times. Yes, exactly. Even American allies. Yeah. And um, the I think that um, it'll there's also going to be all kinds of second and third order effects that we can't really think of. Um, Egypt might starve. You know, that's something nobody's thought of, but Ukraine and Russia are two of the biggest grain exporters to um, Egypt, which has a giant population and a very, very low level of development, very, very limited arable land. Um, so if there's hunger pressure on Egypt on top of everything else that's going on regionally in Libya and Syria and Yemen, then potentially Russia invades Ukraine, Egypt collapses. Um, there's... Could this also be an issue for China, by the way, because the, I think Ukraine is a member of the Belt and Road. Yes, but it's a terminus, right? It's um, you, or rather, the um, only thing that you lose with Ukraine that isn't already lost because of the war is your ability to connect through Russia to Europe, but you've already but you also lose that because of the sanctions. Um, however, the Belt and Road also connects um, via Turkey and um, through sea lanes to the ports of Piraeus and uh, a number of other ones in the Mediterranean. So um, the Chinese Belt and Road is not going to be compromised over this. And as long as they can balance and avoid getting uh, sanctioned by Europe as uh, you know, illegally trading with Russia, then they could potentially get the best of both worlds. Um, also, because I just thought of it, I promise this will be the last question. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I hope this doesn't sound like ignorant of me to ask, because I, I think a lot of people wouldn't ask it. They just think it's not even a question worth asking, but is there any possibility that, that Putin doing this at this specific time is related to 2024? Because I know the, the election the election is coming up and maybe Putin is just thinking of retiring. Um, I, I think that it actually has more to do with um, the Biden administration. The Putin, as long as Trump was in power, uh, time was on Russia's side. There was always the potential that um, some you could find some transactional deal where Trump would just give you Ukraine, um, like he gave Turkey uh, Rojava, for instance. Um, or uh, worst case scenario, you don't make that deal, but he's so busy uh, fighting with the deep state. He's so busy castigating generals. He's so busy um, failing to address COVID that he's steadily degrading American state capacity the longer he's there. The longer he's there, the worse it works, the more chaotic the society is. So don't, don't rush, you know, build up your forces, bide your time, but no need to, to go in now. With Biden, the blob, is back in charge of American foreign and security policy. The um, situation is not going to improve for the foreseeable future. 
Um, and the longer that uh, Ukraine and NATO have uh, this, this burgeoning relationship, the better trained, better equipped, um, and more dangerous Ukrainian forces will be. So you go in now. And uh, there are a couple of questions from the list that uh, I just want to quickly hit because- Yeah, no um, problem, no problem. And I'm, I'm sorry I didn't touch on no, all no, of this. No, no worries. Um, the, so what, what about Russian internal opposition? Um, the parliamentary forces, the opposition parties, they're fairly neutered because the parliament and the electoral system is not where, how you get control of the levers of power. And um, Russia is kind of the exact opposite of the United States where Joe Biden says, well, you know, the Senate parliamentarian says we can't do it. You cut so, out there for a second. What was that? So Russia is in a lot of ways the exact opposite of the United States. And the, the U.S., Biden, um, for instance, can say, you know, the Senate parliamentarian won't let us do this. Therefore, I abandon this program. Um, while in Russia, it's it would be comical to imagine that like parliament was going to block some plan that um, the uh, president had decided upon. So that's electorally, you're not going to get very far. You need probably something like a large enough defection of uh, the elite around a potential rival leader to um, kind of have a palace coup. I don't see the likelihood of that is particularly high because Putin is very good at um, quashing uh, budding incipient centers of power outside his control. And yeah, I, I remember someone said to me, well, why doesn't someone in Russia just kill Putin? And I said, this dude was brought up in the KGB. Yeah. I don't, he's not dumb. He's yeah. exactly like this. This is what he's good at, right? Like this is precisely what he's good at. And, and think about it. He's outlived so many oligarchs. He's buried um, so many enemies that um, he knows how to stay alive. The thing that frightens him the most is a Maidan style people power movement with some hardcore anti-Putin groups together with um, you know, facilitation resources organization provided by the West. And that's, that's why he shut down all of the um, Western NGOs. That's why he's made human rights rhetoric and democracy rhetoric toxic within Russia. Um, this also sounds like maybe why he talks so much. And I, I always thought this was an interesting point. But, you know, when Trump won the election, I think we heard a lot of talk about, uh, you know, Putin is the mastermind puppeteering Trump. And I thought that was off base, even if you believe that Putin would prefer Trump in office to Hillary Clinton. Right. But it, it was almost like uh, Democrats uh, were saying that this was like a, a Keller revolution orchestrated by Russia. And on the other yes. hand, you have Russia, whenever something happens in Russia, it's, oh, it's a Keller revolution by um, the U.S. And I think it's interesting. We have versions of that in both the U.S. and Russia. But it sounds like, uh, you know, the idea of Keller revolution really is a, a fear to him in his mind. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's what brought down, that's essentially what brought down the Soviet Union, which he is described as the worst geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And um, so 
that's where opposition forces could have some pressure on him. And but he's been watching out for this one. Two, um, I don't know if any opposition forces have the organization or the capacity to develop the organization that would be needed to mobilize on a large enough level. Um, if the war goes on too long, right, and many, many Russians start dying, you have um, grieving mothers, that's dangerous. It's very dangerous because the grieving mothers organize themselves, right? Like you don't need to have uh, cafe intellectuals or podcasters or anything else if you have um, that type of pain mobilized against you. Um, so that's where I think anti-Putin um, pressure might come from, and it depends entirely on his handling of uh, the conflict. The, um, and there was one other, oh, um, who will be last longer as the head of state, Erdogan or Putin? Man, I, I'm going to say Erdogan just because this invasion has put a question mark over, has reduced like from 100% to some number less than 100, um, Putin's longevity, while Erdogan seems completely uh, entrenched uh, for the foreseeable future. I, I know a lot of people that are thinking that um, Putin's going to be out very soon, and I'm not as... I'm a little bit more skeptical of that. I, I'm not sure he's going to be like overthrown within the next month. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that you should. Um, I, that sounds to me like very wishful thinking. Um, the um, right, like he's not. Uh, he's not an elected leader. He's not like Joe Biden, where oh, oh, oh golly gee, right? The midterms are bad. And, you know, there's a popular Republican in governor, Republican governor of Pennsylvania. I'm done. Um, that, that's why yeah. I felt like uh, maybe it was a dumb question for me to ask about the 2024 election, but mm. go on. Yeah. So the 2024 election um, will. Um, one possibility, because Putin has to be aware of the fact that um, these sanctions and whatever the Western reaction is, is going to be painful for Russia. It's going to box it in. Um, so maybe he sees that as an as a opportunity to turn the page. He retires, somebody else comes in, and then you can, you can negotiate with the West. Then you can reopen um, contacts. But he'll have done the dirty work of bringing Ukraine in um, he'll have done that for his country, allowing the next guy to do what, what else is necessary. But um, as for the election being a mechanism to get rid of him, no. I mean, he, he'll decide how much he wins by. If he wants to win, right? If he chooses to run. And it'll be interesting to see who might succeed him. But if you want to be the leader of Russia, the best way isn't to go after Putin, but to make yourself indispensable to him and so loyal that he will give you the keys when he's done with the 
uh, with the yeah. And, and just to be clear, my my thinking was more so that maybe he'll just step out because I mean he is getting older. I think yes. he's seventy or close to that now. Yeah, he's uh, he's turning seventy this year. And then, was there anything else uh, that you want to say in closing here, or any questions we didn't cover? Um, the if they let Ukraine into the EU, it should not adopt the euro. Nobody should use the euro. Uh, but th- and that's one last question. And um, this really is just a a terrible. Oh, actually, here's another one. Um, well, why should no one adopt the euro? Oh, um, because you don't want to be Greece. Right. Okay, well, they, that's a good point. <laughs> that's that's an easy one to answer. I'll I'll leave it there. Uh, because um, what forces of de-escalation would remain in a Europe united against Russia? And I think that all of the the pain that the Europeans are going to feel with gas prices, with energy, with um, with disrupted business links, uh, there's going to be a, a bourgeois bourgeois delegation after bourgeois delegation. From you know Deutsche Bank to Total Fin Elf to you know you name it uh, to uh, Louis Vuitton and uh, the Hermes conglomerates. Um, do, you, do you think that explains why today we had Macron uh, talking to Putin? Do you think a lot of uh, the the European leadership is like we have to find a, de- a way to deescalate? Or I I'm. I know that I'm kind of weird on this, but I I kind of like Macron, um, and that is a French president because uh, he sucks at governing France. It's funny. I just had someone else on who was not a fan of Macron, but they thought that he was trying to do something with this Russia situation that maybe yeah. trying to find it off ramp. I think that he, in the best French tradition actually has diplomatic instincts and actually has an international vision um, and a willingness to like get on the phone with people who aren't going to be happy to hear from him and cajole and wheedle and charm and flatter and do all the things to try to get a deal when a deal is important to get. And um, so I think that it isn't necessarily it isn't necessarily um, motivated entirely by uh, sort of um, interest pressure from below but I think that he's kind of taken on the role of the chief diplomat for the EU um, which is frankly he knows what's at stake obviously yes yes and I also I think he's auditioning for president of the European Council um, which would be a great job for him. I'd strongly recommend just do it already, right? But um, I think that, um, you know, the way out of this might be another peace congress like the, uh, like Paris uh, 1919, which would recreate a new architecture for Europe that included Russia, included Russia and settled um, all of the issues within the Ukrainian um, do, you, do you think though that's feasible um, at any oh, point? Not now. Okay. Not now, but maybe in two, three, five years, um, that'll be how that would be the best way to get Russia out of the box. Um, 
the because whatever the resolution, um, Russia is not going to capitulate in Ukraine. Um, it's going. Well, to impose... it, it sounds like too. If we keep going the way we're going with this, we're just going to create another generation of Russians that may end up thinking like Putin, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I, I think that the um, first, we just need a ceasefire and some kind of way to end the hostilities now. And we need to worry about refugees and we need to worry about post-war reconstruction and we need to worry about humanitarian aid. Um, I, then there needs to be a settlement between Russia and Ukraine to end the war permanently. Um, that's going to be very difficult under these conditions because um, the Ukrainians have, um, you know, the wind in their sails and um, a strong, like, national patriotic drive to repel the aggressor. And it's it, like, I can't fault them for it. And if they want to fight, how am I to tell them to stop? But I, would like the conflict just to end as quickly as possible so as few people need need to die and suffer. Um, then two, three years out, after a decent interval, um, we need a new security architecture for Europe that includes Russia this time. It's interesting too, because I had someone say to me recently, um, well, the, the Ukrainians uh, should not give up and I agree with you, it's it's not our place to tell anyone uh, this, but yeah. I had someone say, well, they should fight as hard as possible and kill as many Russians as possible because then there's less of a chance that Russia can uh, occupy for an extended period. Uh, and I, I want to say I get the logic of that, but I also don't necessarily think it could go that way. And I think if you go, if you let this conflict draw out by the time it ends, uh, you know, there, there could be like heavy bad blood. Well, yeah, and also um, not just heavy bad blood, but a million dead, two million dead, uh, bombed out cities. Well, that, that for me goes without saying. We go on, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, the the those those consequences, those losses, then have a life of their own. Like you said, genders bad blood, but also traumatize people. Everyone has. You create a society where everyone has PTSD. You, um, you, um, you know, you, you're poisoning the water with uh, depleted uranium, or maybe Chernobyl uranium. You are um, just the the lingering effects of that kind of conflict. Um, the potential that you end up with ethno-nationalist gangs ethnically cleansing entire regions of unfavored minorities, uh, that this ends in pogroms. The longer it goes on, the dogs of war are more likely to come off their chains. And then it it becomes nightmarish. Right now, there's still order on the Ukrainian side, right? And there's still discipline in the Russian ranks. That doesn't need to hold. And then it gets medieval. Um, So yeah. I guess I guess the way to end it is just cease fire now. Talk it through. Make the concessions you need. Just save as many people as you can by trying both 
Russia and Ukraine to be as reasonable as possible within those confines. And I don't mean this normatively. It is entirely up to Ukraine to determine how long it wants to fight. But um, i just thinking from the perspective of the human toll. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. We're going to keep you posted on the situation. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider giving a monthly donation at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.